Thank the Lord for gathering us together into his name once again in Nottingham. A lot has happened in the last year, wouldn't you say? As you reflect upon your own life's journey with the Lord, as you consider what the Lord has spoken through his recovery, how the Lord is moving. It's been quite a year. Our God is continuously flowing, constantly working, and always moving to fulfill the desire of his heart. I have an unusual way, at least it strikes me as a slave of Christ as unusual, an unusual way of opening this conference. I'd like to share with you where the message came from. And how it came. And to open the way for our understanding, I would refer to a very particular portion in Brother Watchman Nee's series of messages published as the book, The Ministry of God's Word. In some respects, that is the deepest ministry that we have of his available because it takes us deeply into what ministry is. And there's a section in that book entitled The Discipline of the Holy Spirit and the Word. Where does the burden come from? Where do the words come from? One does not simply ponder a subject and think of something to speak. That would be a disgrace and a dishonor to the Lord and to his body. The word that is ministered is the product of an intense and severe discipline of the Holy Spirit in the life of the ministering one. Ministry, as Brother Lee pointed out in 1967, is produced by revelation plus suffering. That's just the nature of it. That is why it far surpasses natural eloquence, gift. This is what supplies the recovery. So Brother Nee points out that before the word can come and before words can come, the minister must be under the discipline of the spirit, under pressure, And he says, pass through fire. 
then words come that the Spirit will honor. Well, this general subject on proclaiming the gospel for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose is based upon the connection between Genesis 1.26, which speaks of image and dominion, and the gospel of God in the New Testament, which is the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and the gospel of the kingdom. I will long remember the hour this understanding and this burden came forth. I was uh, sitting next to my wife's hospital bed in St. Joseph's Hospital. We all knew the situation. It was simply a matter of time. And for a period of time, she was resting there. I was just sitting there in the Lord, intensely looking upon her. Then amazingly, it's in that situation, under those conditions, that the burden came. The light began to shine. On Genesis 1.26, in relation to the gospel of God, we were created in God's image to express him. We were commissioned to represent him with his authority. This is what a human being should be and what a human being should do. Express God and represent God. And this act of creating God, God's kind in his image and with his authority was a great step in the fulfillment of a purpose determined in eternity past that God would have in this universe a glorious corporate expression of himself in a realm that he rules indisputably as his kingdom. We were created for this. This is the meaning of our existence. This is the purpose of our life. To express God, to recover the earth for him, to bring the rule of God to the earth and to deal with, even crush the enemy, the usurper. Amen. But sin came in. And God in his wisdom allowed the enemy to act quickly as he likes to do. And part of our spiritual understanding needs to include this that the effect of sin in human life 
is to negate God's purpose in creating us. As far as I know and can recall, and I can still recall stuff, okay? There are two definitions of sin given in the New Testament. Quite significant. The first is, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory is God expressed. So everyone living now in the UK, Ireland, Europe, fails to express God, is short of the glory of God. This contradicts the image, the expression in Genesis 1.26. So instead of expressing God, human beings express the self. And when you go under the self, you realize they express Satan. So that nullifies the creation of man in God's image. What a loss. As God gazes upon the earth, as he gazes upon Europe, what is expressed here? Where is the expression of God? The second definition is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, where the apostle says succinctly, sin is is lawlessness. Lawlessness is the principle of rebellion. It's the refusal to be ruled by God, to be restricted by the law of God. And when Antichrist is manifested in this part of the earth, he will be the man of lawlessness. This definition of sin contradicts dominion and representation. So instead of being under God's authority and representing God's authority for the recovery of the earth, fallen man, is a lawless rebel against God, against the will of God, against the kingdom of God. That's Europe. And that's fallen humankind. So does this not create a dilemma for God? He brought us into being to express him in his image, to represent him with his authority. But instead, we're contrary to his glory and express the self. Instead of representing him, we're lawless. So what is God to do? Well, what he determined to do and what he has done is to send his son, 
in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And this God-man Jesus, himself personally in his living, would be the fulfillment of Genesis 1.26. He would express God in all that he did. He could say, I do not seek my own glory. I do not seek my own will. And this one lived under God's authority and brought in the kingdom of God. And his gospel was the gospel of the kingdom of God. So in his living, we have the pattern of the fulfillment of God's purpose with image and dominion. But God does not want just one human being expressing him and representing him. He wants a corporate person, the church, the one new man, the body of Christ, eventually the bride of Christ. So our Lord Jesus, the God-man, died an all-inclusive redemptive death on the cross, tasting death Hebrews 2 says, on behalf of everything. And Hebrews 2 goes on to say that by dying, the Lord destroyed him who has the power of death. That is the devil. At this point, I just insert a word of testimony without being unduly subjective. In the aftermath of Susan's going to the Lord and being received by him and my confrontation with death directly, a portion in Revelation 1 became wonderfully real to me. And it begins at the end of verse 17 and goes through verse 18, where the Lord says, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I became dead, and behold, I am living forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Originally, the devil had the power of death. He's the source of death. After the Lord died, he went in his enlivened spirit of his divinity into the abyss and proclaimed his victory to the spirits that were bound there. And when he walked out in resurrection, he brought with him the keys the authority over death and Hades. Death is still a force. Hades is still a collector of those who die. But the authority is in the hands of the resurrected Christ. Amen. I saw this with my own eyes. When she breathed her last, 
And I closed your eyes and confirmed to the family that she's gone. There was death, but that isn't all there was. Our Christ is a resurrected Christ. In his hands are the keys of death in Hades. Now we come back to the line of the general subject. This Christ in resurrection reproduced himself to bring forth the many brothers and the many sons of God who are the members of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is also designated as the one new man. And this one new man is a corporate God-man expressed in the local churches Fulfilling Genesis 1.26 with image and dominion. We ourselves need to be brought into this realization. Every aspect of it through the operation of the spirit of reality in us needs to become reality in us then we need to announce to those living a life of vanity, absurdity, meaninglessness, a very high and powerful gospel. In 2 Corinthians 4, as we will see, especially in message 2, Paul says, that he's proclaiming the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And he and his co-workers proclaim this gospel by allowing the glorious Christ to shine out from within them into so many human hearts that were in death and darkness and rebellion and sin. There's no other kind of person on the earth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. So Paul would just shine forth and proclaim the glorious Christ as the image of God. And this glorious Christ, who is the image of God, would then shine into these human vessels and regenerate their spirit and make them children of God. And then a process begins of transforming them from glory to glory into this same image. We preach the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for the fulfillment of God's purpose in creating human beings. Our hearts should ache when we look upon the persons 
around us that we're exposed to. Their lives have no purpose, no meaning, no substance. And we respond by obeying the Lord's commission to shine forth this gospel, believing that surely among the many there are the chosen ones who will open their hearts and let God shine into their being. Then we have the matter of dominion, which requires the exercise of authority, which is possessed uniquely by the resurrected Christ, right? Matthew 28, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So none of us, no apostle, no co-worker, no elder, in himself, has authority. The resurrected Christ has all authority. But he shares that with us in the way of our representing him. And this is a particular responsibility we bear. In Matthew 24, 14, the Lord said, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in the whole inhabited earth. And then the end of the age will come. This gospel of the kingdom. I say once again, as I've said before, in the Lord we surely respect a pure brother such as our brother Billy Graham, who's well into his 90s. I believe he's clothed in white garments. He has kept himself pure. He preached with power the gospel that he knew. But not even he could announce this gospel. Only those living in the kingdom of God, in reality and practicality, can proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God in the midst of incredible rebellion. But this is exactly what we're going to do more and more. We will fill Germany with this gospel. From north to south, from east to west, and Germany just represents all of Europe. So I hope you can see an outline, at least initially, of how the gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and the gospel of the kingdom, corresponds to Genesis 1.26. You see this? Image and dominion. And Genesis 1.26, as an act of creation, it's connected to God's eternal purpose mentioned in Ephesians 3. So yes, the enemy has had his day and he's had his way. Europe is a continent of death. 
It's immeasurable in the past century, the degree of death that's here. But we're here as a testimony of the power of resurrection life. And we, are not be, we will not be thwarted, we will not be intimidated by the fallen condition. We have within our spirit the God-man Jesus who fulfilled Genesis 1.26 and who is making us the reproduction of himself to be his corporate expression and representation We will live in this reality more and more. We will become this reality more and more. And then we will proclaim this gospel all over the earth. First, for God himself. Because we love him and we're one with him for his purpose. I'm going to mention a verse. The content may not immediately spring to mind. And there's no fault in that. It's just a fact. 2 Timothy 1.9. When you have time, please pray with this. There Paul says that God saved us and called us not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose. God saved us for his purpose. I didn't realize this decades ago when I was a teenager and got saved. But God knew what he was doing. Ron, I'm going to save you. And eventually I'll show you why I'm saving you. I want you to live. I want you to breathe. I want you to serve for my purpose. So in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul uses the expression, his meaning God's own purpose. But then in chapter 3, verse 10, he says something else. Here he's contrasting Timothy's faithfulness with the vast majority that have forsaken Paul's ministry. And Paul tells Timothy, you have closely followed my this and that, this and that. And he mentions my purpose. You have closely followed my purpose. But he just spoke about God's own purpose. Now he says my purpose. What do you think the connection is? I think you got it already. God's purpose became Paul's purpose. If Timothy wanted to know what God's purpose was, all he had to do was closely follow Paul. And follow Paul's purpose. Because Paul's purpose was the embodiment and expression of God's purpose. And we need to bear such a testimony. We're not here announcing a theory 
a doctrine. We are proclaiming a reality that is increasingly our constitution. By the Lord's mercy and grace, in which I boast, not in myself, I can stand here and I can tell you God's purpose is my purpose. And my purpose is God's purpose. They're one and the same. Every time I visit Europe, then it's a few times a year, the burden is fresh. The burden is powerful. God must and God will see his purpose fulfilled in this part of the earth. So the message is, they're on proclaiming the gospel for the fulfillment of God's purpose. And the proclaiming part surely involves our activity, our action, our speaking, our preaching. But all of this is inseparable from our own being, our own constitution, our own realization, what God's purpose is, and how this purpose is becoming our purpose. And that as the days go by, we are being conformed to the image of the firstborn son. As the days go by, we're learning to live in the reality of the kingdom of the heavens. Individually and corporately. And now, as a corporate new man, increasingly fulfilling Genesis 1.26, we are proclaiming a word from God to this continent. And what's in our heart is we're calling, we're inviting all these lost souls come back to God and to his eternal purpose. Well, why the Lord chose that afternoon when I'm sitting beside Susan's hospital bed. He's God. I know he's God. And I want to give them the freedom to be God to me. And he chose that moment to open up this matter and to impress it deeply on me. I had intended to release the messages at a training in Taipei, but I curtailed all travel in order to care for her until the end. Then in resurrection, the travel resumed. So you get the word. Okay? You get the word. And, you know, no one needs to be emotional. No one needs to be sentimental. But it... It's not a cheap word. It's not a light word. It comes at a cost. 
and is precious. What a mercy to us, my dear brothers and sisters, that we know what God's eternal purpose is. And that we know why God created human beings. And we know how the gospel is related to this. So surely we'd like to give the Lord the opportunity in the next, what, 30 hours or so. Let's all give him the opportunity to do whatever he wants and speak whatever he wants. And we come to him poor in spirit and pure in heart. Okay, now, uh, believe it or not, all of this is not the message itself. This is the introduction. So we have the outline, and so let's go through it. And there'll be ample time, I assure you, for many to respond. And having the saints speak after the message, it's not a formality, it's a necessity. This is the body confirming and completing God's speaking. Okay, God's eternal purpose and God creating man in his own image for his expression. The eternal purpose, the purpose of the ages, is the eternal plan that God made in eternity past. There's something I just delight in saying on God's behalf. I think he, I think he likes it. He's really good at being God. And God is self-existing and ever-existing. He just is. His name is I Am. Maybe next time you have a conversation with an atheist who wants evidence or proof for God's existence, you might listen to her or him and just say, Here's my answer. God says, I am. You got to confront the reality that he is. Well, this God in eternity past took certain actions involving you. And he didn't ask your permission. In Ephesians 1.4, God chose us to be holy Well, who's holy? Only God is holy. So God made that decision concerning you in eternity past. What are you going to do about it? Your only option is when you decide to cooperate. Not whether or not it happens. Then in the next verse, Paul says, we were predestinated unto sonship. So we will have the life of God, the position of God to be a son. Well, likewise, God formed a plan based upon the good pleasure of his will. And that plan became his eternal purpose. There is a resolve in God 
Have you not experienced this? When God sets his mind to do something, it will happen. He is relentless. He will not let you go on this matter till he gets through thoroughly. This is his character. I'm quite touched by some lines in the first stanza of that hymn. In time, we're merely travelers. For eternity, we're meant. This is something, brothers and sisters, we'll have to reckon with. Nothing lasts. No one lasts. I remember this illustrates the point, so I feel it comfortable. Maybe five years ago, I took Susan out for Chinese food, and we're having one of our characteristic, um, mysterious, almost metaphysical discussions as we are just enjoying being together. And we were just talking, I believe, in spirit. That, you know, look, we're not young. Sooner or later, one of us will be with the Lord. Marriage is in the old creation. It's not eternal. We won't be husband and wife in the kingdom and in the new Jerusalem. But during the course of our marriage, something of God's eternal building has been taking place. And that will go into the new Jerusalem. We're on a journey in time. And you can't speed it up. I know you've tried. Psychologically. And you can't slow it down. You try to speed it up when you're in pain. And you try to slow it down when you're happy. (laughs) We're just. We're not meant. Just to exist in time. To have immortality in the flesh. We're here in time for something eternal. And we would like very much our sojourn in time to be a contribution to God's eternal purpose. Wouldn't it be wonderful when you're giving an account to the Son of Man at the judgment seat and he says to you, your life contributed to the fulfillment of my heart's desire. You had the option of living for yourself, for your own interests, for a career, for this or that, but you decided to live to me for God's purpose. So now I'd like you to receive a reward of being with me in the wedding feast and reigning with me in the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be sweet? So we are all under certain eternal decisions that God has made and an eternal purpose 
which nothing will frustrate. God himself, this is A, we're making rapid progress here. God himself is the initiation, the initiation, the origination, and the sphere of his eternal purpose. So God himself is this. In Romans 8.28, his purpose refers to the purposeful determination in God's plan. Okay? Have you touched this in your own life? You just realize you're in a particular situation. And you realize God has a purposeful determination in this. And you may or may not agree with it at first. Because you're human. Not because you're rebellious, but because you're human. But God is a purposeful God, and he is a determined God. It's really not a wise thing to try to withstand God's determined purpose concerning you. And especially among the seven billion people on the earth, very few are consecrated. So in the few that are consecrated, God knows he has the consent, their consent, to do whatever he wants. So he does whatever he wants. And often it's not what we want or what we thought or what we expected. It may be things never entered into our mind at all. Not only negative things, positive things. Well, this is our God. God's purpose is to produce many brothers of his firstborn son. The many brothers are God's many sons whom he is bringing into glory. So God wants to reproduce himself economically by first creating humans and then regenerating them to be his sons and Christ's brothers. See, God's purpose is to have the church, the body of Christ, through which he can express himself. So now we're getting a step higher. God's purpose is to have the church as his corporate expression. And this church is called his wife, the bride. When the Lord was on the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us, there was a joy set before him. As far as I know, we're not explicitly told what that joy was. So I can just share with you what I think it was. What could have been his joy was the realization that the issue of his redemptive death and his life-imparting resurrection 
would be his counterpart, his bride, the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me tell you something about this love. Something I not only believe, this is something I know. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. Love is as strong as death. It's like a flame of Jehovah burning in us. Many waters cannot quench love, nor do floods drown it. There is, in the Lord's heart right now as I'm speaking, this kind of burning love. And someone wrote him 208 about loving the Lord. And in stanza two, there's a line that says something like this. Your love is like a burning fire within my very soul. Another stanza says, burn, burn, O love, within my heart. Burn fiercely night and day. When Christ loves the church, he loves like this. And this love enkindles, according to 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. This love enkindles the fire of love in our being. So I just tell you, as your brother, I'm not here in a routine way. I'm not here because it's a tradition. I'm here because the fire of God's love is burning in my heart. He must have his counterpart. That's his purpose. When God's purpose becomes our purpose, it saturates our whole being. And it brings our love into another dimension. D, the purpose of God in the universe is to produce a group of people who will be exactly the same as he. This is the unique subject of the Bible. Okay, if you're new, please don't be stumbled by this. There's a limitation on it, exactly the same as he. Well, I noticed with affection at breakfast this morning, young couples with little people with them. Like real little people, just months old. And one dear couple that I've known for some years when they were in the training and thereafter and they showed me their little boy. Well, the dad was carrying little Benjamin, seven months old, bound for an FTT in 2038. We, we, we kind of sort of prophesy. He's the same as his parents. He's the same as his dad in life and nature, but not in his dad's fatherhood. 
So we are children of God. So we have the life and nature of God, but not his Godhead. We know that. Only he is an object of worship. But we are the same as he is. Look at point one. In life, nature, image, appearance, radiance, glory, and outward expression, they will be the same as God. Okay, let me personalize this. Let me tell you about your future, your destiny. You will be the same as God in life. You will be the same as God in nature, in image, in appearance, in radiance, in glory, in outward expression. Well, how do we know that? We know that because the Bible tells us so. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What does Revelation 21, 10 and 11 tell us about the new Jerusalem? The angel tells John, come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. He was carried away in spirit to a mountain. He saw the new Jerusalem descending from God, having the glory of God. The new Jerusalem is a person. So I I know there are times when we're discouraged by our condition. But don't believe in your condition. Believe in your destiny. This verse describes your destiny. Okay, I can just tell you in honesty... There's more glory here in this Nottingham gathering this morning than there was a year ago. There's more image here than there was a year ago. Way to go, saints. This is really happening. Two, God's eternal purpose is to work himself in his divine trinity into his chosen and redeemed people. So he chose you, didn't ask for your permission, Whether you like it or not, you were chosen, you're going to be holy, you're going to be a son. He redeemed you, and he's working himself into you as your life, nature, and everything, so that they may be saturated with God. Have you ever made that a little prayer? Lord, I want to be saturated with God. And let me tell you something rather mysterious or paradoxical about being saturated with God. The more you're saturated with God, of course, the more you are the same as he, as he is in life and nature. But the mystery is, the more human you become in Jesus. On the one hand, you're becoming Jesusly human, but you're a human who is increasingly saturated with God. So you're not religious, and you're not, quote, spiritual in a goofy sense. You become surprisingly human. You know, I understand that sometimes the saints who view the speaking brothers from afar think they're another 
species or something like this. And, you, and if, if someone would come and shake your hand, you might faint or hyperventilate. <laughs> but come on. We're just the same. We're just the same. The same in creation, the same in the fall, the same in redemption, the same in organic salvation. So let's be saturated with God and become Jesusly human. Europe has never seen this. You know, one characteristic of Sardis, which figures the churches of the Reformation, which started, we know, in Germany, and will be in Germany 500 years later. Next year for an elders training in Leipzig. How about this? I think the Lord's going to explode. But the characteristic of the Protestant churches is that they didn't complete anything. So we should let the enemy know, put him on notice. We're here to complete the job. We're going to do it. Throughout Europe, the Lord will have those in the churches who will not only start something, but it will be completed. E.E., God saved us and called us with a holy calling according to his own purpose and grace. So that's what God had in mind when he saved you. So isn't it sad that there are millions of Christians that are saved and don't know why, even have been diverted to think you're saved, to have, you know, a cosmic condo in the sky, to just go to heaven. We need to help our brothers and sisters in love to see you were saved for God's purpose. And now you need to know what God's purpose is. The purpose of God's salvation is for his created and redeemed ones to have the sonship. That is to have the life of the son and to be conformed to the image of his son so that the son would be the firstborn among many brothers. So in other words, to produce the many sons for his expression. Salvation involves our being saved from a human life that is meaningless. I don't know how much this weighs on you. To me, it's... And for a certain period in my life, when I was engaged in a certain level of study, I was just intensely concentrated on the philosophy, the literature, the art, in Europe, which showed a generation struggling for meaning and confronting, especially after World War I, in which almost a whole generation was lost, the absurdity of life. Have you ever seen Picasso's Guernica painting in Madrid? I don't know, maybe American materialism has drugged the young people I don't know. But deep within, there's a cry for meaning. 
I just listened to a sister's testimony. She happened to be from China in an atheist environment. When she's about 13 or 14, she's asking, why do all these people exist? Why do we exist? So salvation saves people from a human life that is meaningless. When my, when Susan ended her life, she could have the sense, and we had the sense, she finished her course. What a different feeling for someone else to die and they had the sense it was all meaningless. Vanity of vanities. We need to save people from this. The gospel of God saves us out of a human life that is without meaning into the meaning of the universe. That could be an opener in the gospel conversation. How would you like to be brought into the meaning of the universe? I can tell you in 25 words or less what it is. God created a man who had great meaning and purpose, but man fell and the meaning of human life was lost. That's Europe. That's France. I should say France. <laughs> but I just can't get used to France. So please forgive me for saying France. Okay. All, all over. Don't you believe that throughout Europe there were at least several thousand chosen ones? that will respond to this good news about the meaning of the universe in their human life? With his salvation, God rescues us and brings us back to our original purpose, which is the meaning of the universe. So now we come to the image directly. We quote Genesis. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. The decision to create man was made in eternity past, indicating that the creation of man was for the eternal purpose of the triune God. Brother Nee helps us to realize we need to have the proper emphasis on creation and not only on redemption. If, okay, I've done this before, I'll do it again. I would like respectfully and sincerely ask all the theologians in the UK and in Ireland a question. Can you tell me in one sentence why God created you? I doubt whether anyone in Cambridge or Oxford 
can answer this question as clearly as a little Chinese man from Chi Fu. <laughs> if they can, and they haven't plagiarized the answer, and are willing to cite their sources, I will honor that. But usually, the preachers, I've heard this when I was young, didn't satisfy me then when I was 16, 17. Oh, God wanted someone to talk to. I want someone to fellowship with. Well, he can, he can talk to angels. Why does he need an earth with people? That's not why. God created you just so you could text each other, email each other, have conversations. Then what would be the substance of it? So we're working on the next issue of Affirmation and Critique. It'll be on image and dominion. We have to see the connection between Genesis 1.26 and Ephesians 3.11. We were created for the eternal purpose of the triune God. B, God created man in his own image according to his likeness. And it's because of this, and because we're a vessel, that God in Christ as the Spirit feels very comfortable living inside of you. So let me just pause. Just consider, right now, the triune God is living in you. Isn't this astounding? Yesterday, we were visiting some dear saints in rugby. And the family, the couple, had this very lovable black Labrador named Prince. And he was putting his paw on my foot, indicating, dog food, please. I had to tell him, I'm a God man. I have God in me. You don't have God in you. You don't have a spirit. God created us to resemble him, to look like him, to receive him, and then express him. God's image, referring to God's inner being, is the expression of the inner substance of God's attributes. So the image corresponds to God's attributes, especially this point mentions the most prominent of which are love, light, holiness, and righteousness. So the more we're saturated with God and are transformed into the image of the firstborn son, the more these attributes will be expressed effortlessly love Whoa. what will people do with that when they meet the love of God flowing out from an ordinary human being to them and that love includes concern and care and compassion and mercy we do not preach this gospel 
in a loveless way. We are bearing the image of God. We're expressing God as love, as light. In John 12, he said, I am the light of the world. In Matthew 5, he said, you are the light of the world. So tell me, who's the light of the world? We or God? The answer, of course, is yes. It's the Lord making us the same as he is. Then holiness and righteousness. People need to meet not only the message, but the messenger. Key two, God's likeness, referring to God's form, is the expression of the essence and nature of God's person. Three, God created man to be a duplication of himself so that man may have the capacity to contain God and express him. So along with image, in Genesis 1, we have vessel in Genesis 2. So this is what a human being is. A vessel designed to contain God and then to express what he or she contains. Since God and man are of the same kind, it is possible for man to be joined to God and to live together with him in an organic union. Okay, for those that are brand new to a gathering like this and to our unusual way of meeting, it may seem, do you know that you have a spirit, a human spirit, that's different from your soul and is deeper than your soul? When God created humankind, he formed the physical body, breathed the breath of life into that body, and then man became a living soul. Okay, the breath of life became the human spirit. The human spirit is not divine. The human spirit is not the spirit of God, but it's very close. That's why God feels comfortable living in your spirit right now. And being one spirit with you. See, God's purpose in the creation of man in his image and according to his likeness was that man would receive him as life and express him in all his attributes. Okay, there's something about ourselves we need to understand and why God is working on a certain part of ourself day and night. Our spirit functions to contact God, to receive God, and contain God. Our soul is the organ of expression. The regeneration of our spirit took place instantaneously. Now we have the Lord in our spirit. What the Lord needs is the expression of the Christ in our spirit, through our soul. That is why the target of his organic salvation has to do with sanctifying, renewing, and transforming our soul. Otherwise, there's no expression with us. 
on the level of the soul were the same as the ungodly. And if we live by the natural life in the soul, we're indistinguishable. But if we allow the Lord to emerge from our spirit and to saturate our soul, and if we are willing to receive the experiences we need to transform our soul, then increasingly the Lord will be expressed through our mind, emotion, and will. And this will either happen in us or it won't. My generation who came in in the 60s, most did not remain. Among those that remained, not that many progressed beyond the second stage. No real dealing of the cross, no real organic salvation, therefore no expression. The Lord has to get through. Europe has to see the expression of Christ in human beings. Then these Christ-expressing persons will announce as the gospel the Christ whom we express. God created man in his image and according to his likeness because his intention is to come into man and be one with man. So God would be very happy if tomorrow afternoon when we dismiss about 4 p.m. and you make your way home, you have the sense there's a little more God in you than when this weekend started. I believe this. I believe in day-by-day saturation with God. Don't try to feel it. Don't try to see it. Just ask God to do it and believe he's very good at what he does. Two, God created man in such a way that man has the capacity to contain God's love, light, righteousness, and holiness. This will increasingly become just so normal. Recently, I became aware of this. Uh, A brother who will soon marry a certain sister wrote to her and uh, shared something from the word and something from a hymn and then said, this hymn expresses the way Christ loves the church and the way I love you. That's Ephesians 5, right? I mean, someone's got to eventually actually live Ephesians 5. Why, don't, why, don't, why not us? Why don't we ask the Lord to bring us into this reality? Wedding meetings are so dear. But it's not the wedding, the bride and the groom, who typify Christ and the church. It's the actual marriage. No wonder Paul called it a great mystery. (laughs) But I believe in this. It's normal for the divine love to be saturated with and expressed through our human virtue of love. It's normal. That's all we want to be is normal, right? And then the last point. And I was aiming to be done by 12, and I might make it. But 
Anything can happen in the last part of a message, but I think I'm going to make it. For God to create man in his image means that God created man with the intention that man would become a duplication of God, the reproduction of God for his corporate expression. Okay, we define, we don't become God in the Godhead. We're not going to be self-existing. We're not going to be omnipresent. I'm in Nottingham. I'm not in my house in Anaheim. But God is in Anaheim and God is in Nottingham. But we are the same as he is in life and nature. This reproduction makes God happy because it looks like him, speaks like him, and lives like him. So let's make God happy. I think it's time for God to have some measure of happiness in this part of the earth where he sees not a huge number, we're not in a movement, but an increasing number of human beings receiving him, being saturated with him, expressing him, then maybe the Lord will just talk to the adversary who still has access to him and say, uh, uh, take, a, take a look now at Germany. What do you see there? Well, I see more of me there than there's ever been in that country. Enemy, you are defeated, destroyed, and bound and headed toward the lake of fire. But before that happens, you're going to have to watch Christ increase all over Europe. And we have the privilege and the blessing to be intrinsically involved in this. Because we know God's purpose. We know why we exist. We know why we were saved. We know what the gospel is. And we love our Lord. We love his purpose. We love the church. We love one another. We love fellow human beings. We love the lost. We're going to proclaim to them this highest gospel for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. Amen. My watch says one minute before 12. <laughs> so maybe we need a brother to direct us what to do, but surely we need much speaking from you to confirm the word.